Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I'm the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Airman Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Thomas Baker. Thomas is the CEO of Aviation Capital Group. He is joining us for the purpose of our Aviation Leaders Report. I should say we're recording this on the 12th of December. Thomas, thanks as always for joining us for the purposes of the report. And um, Before we get into the meat of the discussion, do you want to tell our watchers a little bit about ACG? Sure. Thank you, Joe. And thank you for having me again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, Aviation Capital Group, I hope the audience knows by now, um, we're a core narrow-body lessor of scale based in Newport Beach, California. Uh, approximately 400-ish aircraft owned, managed, and committed. Uh, we are fully owned by Tokyo Century, uh, which is a, a Japanese uh, financial services company traded on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Uh, and we consider ourselves a lesser of scale in the sense that we are not necessarily the biggest in the industry. We don't feel we need to be in the, in the, the biggest in the industry, uh, but we are uh, of sufficient size and capability um, with a flexible capital structure to serve all of our customer needs around the world. Um, we are getting the lowest levered amongst our peers. We have excess liquidity. Uh, we've survived the last four or five black swan events coming out of COVID um, stronger uh, that we've been in a long period of time from a capital structure perspective. So we are uh, a lesser of scale with investment grade ratings that you will see grow uh, into the next up cycle. And Thomas, given that kind of, as you say, pretty pretty broad reach with that number of aircraft owned and managed. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you saw customer performance evolve as the recovery developed over the course of 2022? Sure, um, certainly it's been even. Um, and um, I, I would say, <clears throat> as I typically like to say, you know, nature abhors straight lines. Uh, and so you've seen region by region uh, periods of uh, strength followed by periods of weakness, false dawns, false starts, uh, and then unevenness, unevenness across uh, the globe. So that speaks to anything from uh, the capital structure and positioning and ratings profile of the airline going into COVID, regardless of the region, uh, to the varying degrees of government support um, that different airlines, different regions, different countries um, saw uh, through COVID. Uh, and then, you know, the discipline um, and the fundamental blocking and tackling of the various different airlines. So cer certainly regions have, have had something to do with it. The, the United States being one good example, uh, coming out very strong, Mexico, Europe, uh, through last summer for a period of time, China, Southeast Asia being uh, the laggards, as it were. Uh, but even within those different regions, you've seen pockets of performance, um, whether outperforming or underperforming. Um, now we're sort of in this transition period, obviously, uh, where I do think you'll see more moderate growth in the United States, obviously up a very strong base, question marks in Europe around a potential recession. But that could very well be offset by China and Southeast Asia finally coming online. So it, as, as is anything, and that's why we diversify and, and prefer a portfolio approach, we'll see pockets of strength next year. And we'll see pockets of weakness this year, and our so our ability to to play in and out of that that will allow us to outperform. And and in terms of kind of focusing on that outperformance and opportunities, 
it, it, is it to that geography aspect you're thinking where, okay, we'll see ASPAC, hopefully China come back online in 23, uh, or is it still a case of, look, it depends on the airline customer, the right size of transaction. Just interested in your thoughts on where you're, you expect to see the opportunities over the coming year. Mm -hmm. so, so it's both, Joe. I mean, obviously, again, the industry and, and we have been waiting a long period of time for China and Asia to come back online. So I think we'll finally start to see that in the next year. Um, but, but more uh, specifically to the customer, ACG and, and a lot of our leasing peers, you know, we learned a lot about our counterparties, um, country by country, region by region through COVID. Um, and I think we've all determined who um, we want to grow with into the next up cycle and maybe who we want to risk manage down or, or grow less with or grow away from. Uh, and so I think you'll see, and some of that is, is credit profile on paper and some of that is behavior uh, and or partnerships that were formed in very tough times. So yes, I think you'll see us continue to, you know, we grew a lot in Latin America over the last couple of years. So I, you know, because that's where the growth was over the last 18 months. So I feel like that we're, we're in a good, pretty good place there. I think there are other parts of the world where we would like to have grown more and we didn't for various different reasons. So we'll focus on those areas. Uh, and then hopefully we'll just benefit from China and Southeast Asia, where we do have pretty good exposure already, coming back online. And then within those regions, you'll see us continue to increase investments to partners uh, who we really think outperformed in various different ways through COVID. Uh, and then we'll de-emphasize partners who did not outperform or who did not perform according to expectations over the last two years. If that's on the opportunity side, just just in the challenges to those opportunities, interesting <clears throat> thoughts, Thomas. You know, if we look at the macroeconomic environment, the challenge about inflation or dollar or interest rates, or the geopolitical side, the challenge with Russia, and maybe an increased perception of geopolitical risk. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that macroeconomic and geopolitical situation has been impacting on your business? Sure. No, I I think it. Um... It, it speaks to, again, the necessity of a scale platform, an asset manager who is managed through multiple cycles, uh, who has the capital structure flexibility um, and, the, and the expertise, the scale and the expertise, marketing expertise, technical expertise, um, partnerships with OEMs, uh, you, you know, and, and through multiple cycles, because this stuff pops up all the time. And I think that the uh, there were a lot of new entrants into the leasing market over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine years, um, who entered in a period of relative stability, entered in a period of very low and stable interest rates into a relative period of global macroeconomic growth, gentler, gently upward sloping to the left, um, without a lot of fuel price volatility, and they thought the business was easy. Uh, or they thought that anybody could come in, three guys in a garage for the warehouse could come in and be a successful lessor. And I think this more challenging environment uh, is more the pendulum switching back to really the challenges that we face over the last 30 something years as a platform. And it requires expertise, scale, discipline, capacity, capability, capital. Uh, and so I think you'll see, you will see a return to normal in terms of these challenges firing up. And then I see you'll see differentiation in different platforms' ability to perform in greater volume. 
Yeah, and I think we might pick up that scale point in, in a minute because it's one we've seen thematically emerge a lot as we've been having the conversations for this year's report. Maybe before we get there, focusing on the debt side and the interest rate environment that you referenced, you know, I think having this conversation a year ago would have said, yeah, rates are going to go up. And I, I guess someone said they were going to be 4% or so at this time. Maybe people went, that seems a little bit high. But I guess it happened so quickly and in such a condensed fashion. There's a little bit of whiplash in the market that seems to be causing some challenges. Can you talk to us about how you've seen those challenges develop? Um, I'm just interested on your thoughts over how that interest heightened rate environment is feeding in on lease rate factors. Sure. So <clears throat> several things there. One, there's, you know, in terms of higher rates for financial services companies, companies that earn their money uh, uh, on a spread basis, net interest margin, higher rates are in many ways a good thing, fundamentally a good thing. Uh, the volatility around rates, I think, is what creates problems and created so much consternation over the last six to nine months. Um, so a structurally higher rate complex uh, for an investment grade lessor who funds at the capital, at the corporate level, um, that's a, that creates competitive advantages for us. So we're not afraid of higher rates. Volatility creates problems, um, but structurally higher rates necessarily do not. In terms of how that flows through the lease rate factors, one, obviously the input cost should raise these rate factors, and we're seeing that now. Um, ours is a long cycle business um, in the sense that contracts get written, Campaigns are fought, aircraft are ordered months and years in advance of when they actually hit the PL or when the aircraft actually delivers. And so there's a lag, there's a natural lag of that. And some people will tell me it's nine months, some people will tell me it's 12 months, some will say 18 months. We'll see. I mean, you're already starting to see move the needle up. When you look back at the calendar and you see when rate volatility really started to kick up and rates really started to exceed, it was spring, summer of last year. So that nine to 12 to 18 month rule would suggest that, again, we're already seeing upward trajectory in lease rate factors. You'll continue to see that into the spring and summer, assuming the interest rate um, complex remains high. Uh, and so we would expect lease rate factors to continue to increase into the spring and summer uh, to a place where people can make money. Uh, because you can only put so much dumb capital to work. You can only lose so much money uh, before discipline forces you to re-rate your business. And we expect the industry to see that. Yes, it seems logical, as you say, that overhang of capital just, just has to expire, right? And, and it's, it, it, it is really a question of, of just economically when. Um, to your point on investment-grade lessors like yourselves, you have that ability to tap the capital markets and did so very effectively, um, like most IG-rated lessors, you know, you know sensibly raised funds in the lower rate environment. Um, if you're not an IG rated lessor, what options are available to you out there now? Yeah, I think it's gonna become a big challenge. And, and this is, so this, it's important, you know, scale is a, is a very generic term in our industry. And a lot of people equate it just with number of aircraft owned, managed at least. To me, scale means a very different thing. It's much more nuanced than details. Scale means, ability to finance yourself on an unsecured basis, ability to, to finance yourself at a corporate level, investment grade ratings, a global marketing team, a global technical team, um, relationships with key lending banks. Uh, you know, all of that stuff to me is scale. 
Uh, and, and so I think that lessors with scale in the ascent, uh, you know, ability to finance in the term loan market, ability to finance in the capital markets, ability to um, find other pockets of capital when there are mispricings in the bond market, uh, that, that is going to be a competitive differentiator on the go forward, um, I firmly believe. And I think you're already starting to see it. Uh, lessors that rely on captive warehouses, lessors that have to fund at the asset level, lessors that have to term out existing funding facilities into a higher interest rate environment, I, I think a lot of those players will struggle. Either the capital will become less flexible, which is a huge disadvantage, uh, or the capital will become less visible in the sense that you only have a certain period of time, you're going to have to term it out, and you don't know what the cost of that money is over the length of the lease. You can only see 12, 18, 36 months out at lower LTVs and so on and so forth. So I, I think it's going to be a, when rate, when spreads were low, money was cheap, it was easy for people to make business decisions based on fleeting costs of capital. Now it's a lot harder. And I think you'll see that next year. And that would imply kind of two things really, as you chat that through Thomas. One, probably a little bit more distress, right? um, potentially within the aviation finance world. And second, by extension, more consolidation. Would you agree with that kind of hypothesis if you're saying you know, the, the debt side will become more challenged you know, people who haven't had a sensible strategy and how they're funded versus the assets that, you know, are income generating, would that be kind of where you'd expect the market to go in the medium term? Uh, so, so yes, the answer is yes. Um, you know, I always, I always get a little squeamish around the consolidation word. It, it, to me, it's just a transfer of ownership of assets. You know, I've seen these charts. There were 95 leasing businesses 10 years ago. There were 105 five years ago. There's 97 now. You know, so there are there are transitions of ownerships. Um, there are merging and consolidations of platforms. But the the you know the overall number of players or amount of capital in the space, I think you'll see remain relatively stable at least over the shorter to medium term. But I do think that you will see transfers of ownership. So yes, so if the ABS market stays closed, if warehouses term out um, and there's not an ability to uh, refinance those assets in the ABS market or through other people, then they'll have to dispose of them one way or another. Uh, so you could see more distressed sales into the secondary market, um, which of course we would be natural buyers of. Um, I think hopefully you'll see fewer capital formations in the sense that new businesses starting with new money. Um, so so cer certainly I, I do think that, again, if in a tougher environment where capital is harder to come by, it's less flexible and it's a harder operating environment, easier to lose money, so on and so forth, hopefully you'll see a lot of assets transition from platforms that aren't really capable of owning aircraft through challenging cycles, moving from them to platforms that can operate and can access capital through more challenging cycles. Yeah, and just one more thought around that. Presumably, as you say, that, that scale point, and I take it not being size, I, I take it being, as you say, having the relationships, the access to liquidity along lots of different avenues is becoming you know, increasingly important in, in this more constrained environment. That would seem to apply that your barriers to entry get that little bit higher. Um, and I'm presuming then that you would also 
I won't, I won't presume anything. Do you agree that that might just increase your barrier for new entrants as well, and that we're unlikely to see it, probably as many new entrants as, as we've seen over the last few years? I would hope so, Joe. You know, I, I, I we joke a lot about it. In, in, I, in a in a global industry as as capital intensive as we are, the barriers to entry have been surprisingly low, and the barriers to exit have been surprisingly high. You know, there are a lot of zombie portfolios kind of limping around that I, I would have expected to disappear a while ago, but they find a way to hang on for, for one, one reason or another. So I, I, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. But, but again, it, it, you know, the aviation investing complex has become an industry in and of itself. It used to be aviation investing used to be one or two chairs in a larger structured finance desk or um, or hard asset trading, it'd be one chair on a hard asset trading desk or something like that. You know, the aviation investing complex now are entire companies, um, teams of people dedicated to each slice of the capital structure. You know, so it's deeper, it's more sophisticated, it's more pervasive than it's ever been, which is a great thing. Um, but but to me, it's also trained me never to believe that, you, you know, capital will, will leave the space as quickly as I think it might just transitions to a different place or a different part of the capital structure. But yeah. I, hope, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. You know, um, we could use a more orderly market for sure for a period of time. Yeah, and, and that point you made about the kind of, I suppose the coverage of the sector, right? There's always been a low number of listed lessors, but the increasing number of IG rated ones. And I suppose the maturing and attractiveness of the sector from an investor perspective, uh, on that front, Thomas, can I get your thoughts? Have we seen any evolution of the types of investors that have come to the space? You, know, you guys were formerly owned by an insurance group. You were owned by Japanese Capital Now, which is a long and storied history with aviation. Have you seen any themes on the investor side that have emerged post-COVID? No, I, you know, clearly, and it depends on what time period you're talking about, but, but clearly over the last 15 years, we've certainly seen the institutionalization of aircraft leasing and the globalization of aircraft leasing um, to a degree, you know, it was always an institutional uh, global business in the sense that the Europeans owned the big leasing platforms and it was primarily uh, leasing businesses were, were used to fund long duration liabilities. So insurance companies and things like that. Uh, you know, then, then, the, then the assets moved to the, or the expertise where the industry, the center of gravity moved the Americas for a little bit, moved to Asia, then moved back to Europe. Now, you know, we'll see where that ends up. But, but in terms of big, sophisticated, well-capitalized, institutional, competitive players, it feels like the industry has grown up a ton in the last 10 years. And a lot of that is just excess liquidity. You know, you've seen it in other asset classes and in other sectors. There's so much money sloshing around looking for excess return in a low-rate environment. And aviation has proved to be a great place to put your money. Long dollar or long duration U.S. dollar secured by the asset, assets that move, uh, well-managed platforms. You know, it's been a good business, but the amount of capital that rushed into the space uh, over the last 10 years has certainly changed the landscape a lot. Um, some for the better, some for the worse. Uh, but it's a much more institutional business uh, than it was even 10 years ago, I would say. And, and on that, 
comparison with other asset classes, as you say, as we move into you know a more capital constrained global environment. What are your thoughts on aviation's attractiveness as an asset class? We talked a lot about the maturing, but there's probably also the element there where one, you know, hit harder than COVID by most, hit harder by the Russian invasion than most. And the counter to that is it's been incredibly resilient. So very interested in your thoughts over when you look at, you know, aviation as an asset class, are we in a better or a worse place than we were three years ago? Um, well, I, I would say better from an investing standpoint, because when you talk about when you when you talk about three years ago, you know, 20, 2019 from an investing standpoint, you know, that was the ninth or tenth year of the upcycle. It was tough, you know, uh, for, from an investor standpoint. A lot of the excess rents had been competed away in favor. Of the, there was so much money trying to get put to work uh, in the same place, new technology narrowband. Uh, new assets, high quality credits. It was a very tough environment, you know, in 2019 from an investing standpoint. Um, so here we are three years later, we see a lot of opportunity. Um, it's it's tougher. You know, I, I think what we'll see now, aviation is still a great place to invest. Leasing is still, the aircraft and leasing are still great, provide great investment opportunities. But, but I think people have come to see the industry for what it is. I think people forgot how challenging it can be. Um, you, you know, what's required to invest in the cycle, um, the expertise required. So I, I think the amount of capital that flooded into our space, the sophistication of the investors from private equity uh, to others that have come into our space has forced anybody, everybody to become more sophisticated uh, and has increased the competitive dynamic in the industry. Um, and so I think everybody has needed to become, you know, to notch up their game, become more sophisticated, become better stewards of capital, better investors. But in terms of opportunities to invest now versus 2019, I think there's more opportunity to get excise rents today uh, than there were in 2019 when we were at the peak of the peak of the peak. And people have been, you know, on, on the investing side, we've been beating each other up for that last, that last dollar at the top of the market. Yeah, it's a very interesting perspective, as you say, just dislocation meeting opportunity. Back to your point, if you you got a good platform and you can raise the right capital, then you can go after that opportunity. Whereas every Joe Soap has that capital, you're, you're fighting with the silliest dollar, right, to try and make a return. And um, yeah. one of the challenges the sector clearly is facing and continue to face is on the ESG side, particular focus on the E. Can I get your perspective on how ESG is impacting your business currently and how you see that developing in the coming years? Sure. No, so, so it's critically important for us. It's critically important for our shareholder, Tokyo Century. Um, Tokyo Century actually has a AA rate, an MSCI ESG rating, AA. So um, it, it's something we spent a ton of time uh, thinking of. And, and a, as everyone would say, it's not just the E, it's the S and the G. Um, a lot of uh, stuff we're working on um, on the S and the G. On the E side, um, you, you will see it. It's obviously, it's something our industry needs to focus on. Um, for us, where we choose to spend our time, energy, and our money are on initiatives that are actionable in the near to medium term. And so that's helping airlines um, get access to and finance uh, new technology equipment, uh, which is something that, that's a we're capable of doing, we're quite good at, it's our expertise. Um, and then uh, 
incentivizing hopefully lessees, whether it's through lease incentives or other things to move toward uh, a more environmentally friendly operating model. And then in terms of SAP, which we think is the most actionable, near-term practical um, way to help get our, our industry greener sooner, um, we're investing our own money uh, and we're also supporting other people's investments in trying to bring more SAP capacity online um, in the next, call it 18 to 24 months. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, you know, we're chipping in, we're doing everything we can. Uh, I think it's an industry initiative. Everybody needs to participate. Um, we're a signatory of the ALI initiative that was announced with great fanfare last month uh, in Dublin, uh, as well as other things. Um, so we're super focused on it. We're participating where we can, but, you know, it's the entire industry, I think, that needs to get on board and do their part uh, to help move this in the right direction. Can I probe a little bit on the SAF one, which is clearly the, the main building block that people see, you know, until we see more technological developments on the metal side. Um, it is interesting, and, in, you know, you talk to aviation finance professionals who, who, who've done superb work in helping airlines grow, and you do think there's a space here for those to step in and really try and kickstart the SAF peaks, which we all know is massive production challenges, needs more technological developments as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about ACG's actions in that space if you're really interested in it? Sure, no, I mean, look, right, right now we are seeing being shown um, actionable investments in SAF projects um, that we're evaluating, Tokyo Century's evaluating. Um, we're also working on, um, you know, anchor participation in funds dedicated to investing in staff projects. Um, so putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, we're also, um, I think we, we have now, in terms of ferry flight deliveries, we will use SAF fuel uh, in, in, you know, again, we, we are not the ultimate operators of, of our aircraft investments, but in places where we do have decisions over um, how to fly those aircraft in terms of fuel and other, and other means. You know, we're, we're doing ferry flights with SAF fuel already, and we're trying to encourage our lessees um, to leg it to SAF um, more progressively over time. So it's, you know, it's on the operational level in a small way. And I think in, in 2023, you'll see from a capital perspective in a bigger way uh, that we will try to uh, speed along the proliferation, the accessibility of SAF uh, for our airline customers. Yeah, I think it clearly does. It needs that support, clearly, right? Yeah, with direct investments, you know, we're prepared to invest in projects to help speed it along. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be very interesting as we have this chat next year and the year after and the year after just to see how the developments have gone. And you know, I mean, the urgency is here. You know, that the, the the need for action is immediate. And we're again, it's a long cycle business. These are solutions that take a long period of time to design, map out, implement, and then have come online. And so the frustration will be feeling that sense of urgency, but understanding that some of this stuff just takes a little bit of time to flow through the system. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, Thomas, just on the fleet focus, and, and really interesting your thoughts around investable metal. Um, you mentioned you know everyone was chasing narrow body new tech earlier, and I guess if you gave people an option at the right price, that's what they'd go into. But wider than that, and you mentioned the dislocation in the market, 
kind of opportunities from a metal perspective. And in addition to that, getting your thoughts on the wide body market, which seems to have had some you know, positive recent developments. Yeah, so so I, I we do think that again, but the pendulum always swings too far. Um, and we we would say, you know, in, in the middle part of the last upcycle, people were very excited about wide body investments, and in, which I get, you know, in, in in good times, they generate higher lease rate factors, they throw off a ton of cash, you know, they contribute meaningfully to earnings, um, but obviously higher risk. Uh, which I think a lot of people lived through the last few years. Again, we're we're a core narrow body shop, you know, so we always try and stay light. Um, through through COVID, we we do finance uh, wide body, medium new technology wide bodies um, in the finance, you know, so we will help owners of medium wide body new technology aircraft finance the purchase. You know, where they put equity in the bottom part of your capital structure, they big, they bear the residual value risk. Um, and uh, we eliminate the, the risk of transition in most instances. So we've been participating more in the wide body space on that financing side. I do think, again, the, the pendulum has swung too far, it would feel, the other way in terms of everybody's risk off the wide body space. Whereas I do think that you know, the, the core 789 platform, the A350, 900, you know, those are very nice platforms and serve, can serve a strategic role for airlines um, in, in certain uh, capacities that, that we would find very compelling. So I, I you know, I, I do think that the ACG will take a harder look at the, the right medium wide, new technology, meat body, wide body investments to the right carrier who are using them strategically in, in places we think make sense, but we're always gonna be a core narrow body shop. So you'll see us make those investments at the margin opportunistically, strategically, but I don't think you'll see a wholesale change in our, you won't see a wholesale change in our strategy. And can I get your thoughts then on the, the trading environment in, in two aspects? There there will be some feeling um, in having these conversations report that trading market's not entirely functional. Like come on, the OEMs probably in a second, but we've had delays, big players like yourselves probably haven't divested the way you might normally do. Um, so that's one aspect. And the second is just around values, where you are in an inflation environment, but the interest rate environment is, is probably putting a pull on values. So just your, can I get your thoughts on one, just the state of the trading market and how you see that evolving? And two, what's your take on kind of how asset values are moving? Sure. <clears throat> yeah, so, so the trading market is anemic now. There are, you know, there are some Portfolios in the market or, or bespoke opportunities in the market right now where certain players are just trying to accomplish some year-end objectives or trying to reshape things uh, moderately. But again, those are those are not thick, meaty trading opportunities. I, um, I wouldn't be the first one to say that this fall, there, there was just a fundamental disconnect you know, between people looking to trade out of metal, uh, particularly investments that had been made in a low-rate environment. Uh, where the entry multiple, you know, when you think about the rate going in, DCFs work best when the exit multiple high is higher than the entry multiple. And of course, with the higher rate environment, we have not seen that reset in pricing expectations. And so, you know, some of it's seasonal. It's the end of the year. There, there's been no uh, big chunky opportunity or, or no, no need per se to reset expectations in that market, but it's coming. You know, I, I do think that when the, when the year starts, you will see a bunch of um, RFPs come out or big portfolios uh, come out to test the market. Um, 
and something will need to give. Um, either people will have the ability to wait um, for a little bit longer, but not too much longer. And then if the rates are still high, then pricing expectations will need to come down, particularly on older metal financed uh, in a lower lease rate environment and a lower rate environment. Uh, the market clearing price for that is meaningfully different than it was in a lower rate, lower lease rate factor environment and lower risk environment. Um, you know, and, and, and the number of alternatives, whether it's the ABS market or something else, are shrinking. Um, and so at some point, people will need to trade um, and they'll need to take the market price at that time. Uh, so you can see opportunities for buyers. Uh, I think it will become more of a buyer's market than a seller's market, assuming yeah. rates stay where they are today, relatively. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be an interesting one to kind of watch and develop, uh, as you say, early part of next year. Um, and shift, shifting gear again slightly on the OEM side, part of the challenge we've seen on the trading environment has been the delays. Um, uh, and can I get your thoughts on the OEMs? One, as a lessor who has had an order book, and I think still has an order book, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, has the pandemic developed or evolved relationships between the OEMs and lessors? Yes. It's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, look, you, you, um, you learn a lot about relationships in, under high pressure, tough times. Um, I, I would say we have very good relationships with, with our OEM partners now. Um, we sort of, we went through the peaks and the valleys together. Um, I, I would say, uh, you know, for the most part, it, there were some tough conversations, but, but you know, relationships are founded on doing what you need to do for your partners when you have to. And I would say on both sides of the equation, um, you know, when, when either side really needed it, you know, whether it be ACG or OEM partners, um, we found a way forward in a really tough time. So, so I would just say we learned a lot. And some of it was a little bit challenging, but some of it was also very good and reassuring uh, in a tough time. Uh, they, you know, look, the our REM, the manufacturers have a lot of challenges. Uh, so they're, you know, in many ways, they have a lot of stuff they need to work through and figure out. And they're getting hit by the same exogenous shocks and supply chain pressures, geopolitical challenges that we are. Um, and so in many ways, they're going to need to grind it out. We're going to need to grind it out with them. Um, but delays are frustrating uh, and they really do throw us off and they mess our plans and kind of create a lot of headaches for us. But but also, you know, they are creating inadvertently, they're creating supply constraints um, that we benefit from in other ways. Um, and so as new technology deliveries get pushed out to the left, it's, it's making our current technology release rates come up and it's making, and it's, you know, it's giving a lot of our existing portfolio, um, it's giving us more opportunities to see those uh, last in the, in the market a lot longer uh, than maybe we would have believed a number of years ago. So with challenges become opportunities, honestly. Uh, and I think we're seeing that on, on the OEM side for sure. And another opportunity that we've kind of seen in the market develop, um, probably a segment of the market that's probably maybe performed 
as strong as anything since the outset of COVID is around cargo. Can I get your thoughts? Is that a space you guys have played in? Um, it's always been a spiky market. We've seen probably a slight, we've seen a step change post COVID. Question mark about how sustainable that is and maybe too many players potentially going into that space. So just interested, is an area that ACG has moved into or is it one you see opportunity in? So, so we, we are not big freight players. Um, we, I, I would say, you know, in the, in the, in the fever to, you know, the narrow body conversion trend that you saw over the last number of years, there are a lot of people who are expert in that space. There are a lot of people who commit capital to that space. Um, that's not an area that we want to be expert in or focus in. And so the way we played that bid was to sell metal to the conversion specialists, the cargo um, investors, the people who specifically wanted to commit capital to that space. That we decided years ago, that's not somewhere we wanted to be an expert. Uh, and that's not somewhere we wanted to tie up our capital. So we've sold that when we, there's been a very strong bid. People who had invested in slots, committed to slots, and then couldn't find the airframe um, to put into that slot. So we actually sold um, uh, into that into that strength over the last number of years. And we're, we're pretty pleased with that. Um, we, we do not have significant cargo exposure. We do not want to have significant cargo exposure. Um, if you look at the volatility in that space, um, you know, the, the volatility within a volatile sector uh, to us just seems um, very risky uh, and not, not somewhere we want to spend a lot of time. I'm not an expert in that space, but I think you're already seeing and that's separate, separate and aside from the package delivery, the dedicated carriage, uh, the parcel delivery stuff. That's that's cargo, but not really cargo. You know, um, when you look at classic air cargo, it just feels that market um, could come under significant pressure over the near to medium term. And I actually just read today that Maersk. Uh, who has a more informed view of cargo than any other player in the world just swapped out their CEO, which to me suggests that there's some rough seeds ahead in the cargo market. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting and in having, again, discussion of it. Lots of different views, I would say, right? And we chatted to a few of the, the main cargo providers and it is a space and I can get you the ACG approach and you, you like any space, you need to know what you're doing, right? Um, but as belly capacity comes back, um, as we wonder, you know, the amount of conversion under, was undertaken, just, just how these things feed in and a little bit of the other pieces. I think it's one that we will come back to, I think, in the future to see how that evolution has gone. Um, Thomas, lots of interesting insights as always. And, you know, opportunity is the theme of what we chatted through on, on a lot of these different points. And, and standing back, you know, as you, you know, we're here in December looking out into next year with that opportunity in mind, but some of those challenges also that we've spoken about, what are your optimism levels like? Yeah, so, so I'll take this time last year, we were pretty darn optimistic, actually. You know, I mean, last year, we, we really started to see October get better than September, November get better, December get better. You know, I mean, we felt pretty good coming out of January. You know, we felt pretty good going into March, honestly. Uh, and then we just all, we as an industry got punched in the nose um, pretty hard um, by uh, Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine, obviously. Um, 
And, and so really, I, I would say fundamentally, there are, there are a lot of very constructive things about 2022 um, that you just don't see uh, because the headline noise um, uh, is just so great. Uh, I would say we feel, I feel personally very optimistic about 2023 right now. We've done a ton to improve our portfolio, um, our platform, uh, where we got money to grow, we've got capability, we've got access to capital. Um, so I, I think you'll see ACG um, really, I, and I, I've said in other forum, I think we are already in the second or third year of the next up cycle. It just doesn't feel like that. Usually, Usually it's not until the middle of the cycle that you realize, oh, we're in the middle of the cycle. So I, I think that we are now entering 2023, looking to the stuff we do now, the stuff we do today, the stuff we do next year is going to determine the type of cycle we have in the sense that the investments we make now is what you will see hit our p and in 24, 25, and 26. And so now's the time for us. You know, we haven't grown in three years. Uh, we've gone sideways for three years. Um, and so now's the time for us to grow. Now's the time for us to show that differentiation, that competitive differentiation in our space, um, and really to take advantage of the hard work we've done over the last two years to position our portfolio for now. So pretty excited about it, honestly. Well, Thomas, great to hear that ambition. Uh, I would hope it all comes true for you and ACG. And on behalf of KPMG and Aaron Lannis, I'd like to thank you as always for your insights today and wish you a great 23. Thank you so much, Joe. Pleasure time. Pleasure friendly time.